Hi, and welcome to this installment of our new books at the Heyman Center panel podcast, sponsored by Columbia's Office of the Divisional Deans in the Faculty of Arts and Sciences, the Institute for Comparative Literature and Society, the Department of English and Comparative Literature, and the Society of Fellows in Heyman Center for the Humanities. I'm Anne Levitsky. Today's podcast celebrates Columbia Professor of Classics and of English and Comparative Literature Stathis Gregoris' book, The Perils of the One. First, we'll hear Stathis speaking about his book at the panel, and then I'll bring you my interview with Old Dominion Foundation Professor in the Humanities at Columbia, Bruce Robbins. Um, great. I, I am uh, deeply grateful for all of you being here. Um, it's on. No? That's, that's off. <laughs> <laughs> Are they all supposed to be on? <laughs> green means on? Uh, yeah, green means on, usually. Uh, <laughs> I am, in fact, uh, terribly honored to be in the presence of uh, these four very esteemed colleagues f- uh, from whom I've learned a great deal f- for years, in fact, decades, would be fair to say. Uh, I do have to say, parenthetically, I'm really supposed to say this, but it's okay, it's more important for me to say this. Uh, no, no, I have to say it because, because um, uh, a very important part of this book uh, uh, involves the problem of sexual difference in feminist theory. And um, um, I was entirely in control of organizing this panel, but we asked many women colleagues, uh, very esteemed women colleagues, who for various reasons could not come, including one of them has a book being, um, she's being honored for her book literally right now, the Maison Francaise, mm-hmm. another one is expecting a baby, there's all kinds of reasons, I do want to mention that. Um, I'm, I have very little time, I'm not going to say what this book is about, um, I generally don't think it's a, writers are a very good source. Uh, for information or thoughts about what a, their work is about, despite their claims, and their claims I think should be always looked a little suspiciously. I would like to say something about method, maybe, and context. Um, context here is important. Um, uh, this book is part of um, this very strange. Books write themselves, as I say in, in my preface. Um, and this book very much is like that because it had a very long life, more than 10 years long, about 13 years. Um, it is very, very far away from the way it was initially conceived. Um, it became part of other books, uh, one of which is forthcoming, uh, which would complete kind of a series of meditations on, on these questions. The book that's almost finished called Nothing Sacred and has much more to say about the question of anarchy, the anarchy of democracy and also the problem of humanism and and human animality. Um, But um, they were, they are, I I call them that sort of lessons uh, in secular criticism. Um, I understand secular criticism not as a theory, I say that all the time, but as a practice. Um, which means that um, much of what has gone into this book has been um, extensively revised, reconsidered, uh, thrown out, brought back in, and so on and so forth. Um, It has had a long unfolding and and with a lot of learning in the process and, and a lot of reversals of my positions over the years. 
as I'm um, learning that what I'm trying to argue needs to be much more nuanced. And even though it's very strange this experience with this particular book, even though it's, it's actually exists as an object, uh, I, don't, I have a very ambivalent relationship to it because I don't feel like it's completed. Now it may be that we might all feel that way about what we write, but in a general sense, but this is more acute this time. Um, it, 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 so it, this is material that has been tested in public, whether in previous publication or in lectures. Uh, it has been criticized. Uh, some of these criticisms I've taken very seriously. Others I've rejected, but they've helped me um, pursue with more attention and maybe a little more of an open mind or sort of broader ears, as it were, the problems I'm trying to uh, discuss and the, and the way I'm trying to discuss them. Um, because this is really, um, there's an issue about method here that, that I think deserves some discussion. Um, it's as if I am approaching the, a set of questions, and probably even a very narrow set of questions, if not just one question, from um, several angles and using very different languages. And um, this means that um, when one works that way, one has to kind of come to terms with not just simply repetition, but, but uh, one has to come to terms with, um, um, how can I put it, B being uncomfortable with having achieved something. So, um, it, so it's very strange. I was, I, it's a, usually when my books are published, I kind of you know, read them a bit. I read, they look very different pages. They look very different on the printed page. Then, and it, it's interesting. It's important to do that. You get a certain alienation. I've had terrible resistance looking at this thing. I think um, I'm just confessing. It's just a fact. Um, and, uh, and I think it is because um, uh, it has been a, it's been a long time in, in, in my life and, and uh, I'm very glad that it's out uh, away from me, but I, I still have not come to terms with it. Um, so what I can say is in light of this that, this, that, that if anything, this book, of course it's about ideas and there's a battle sort of ideas that's going on here uh, with a very broad historical range from ancient times to the present, the significant discussions of the early um, Christianity period, uh, medieval period, and the Renaissance, um, and of course all the way to the present, uh, in different kinds of, as I said, languages and topics and cultures. But, um, but really, if anything, um, it's really about writing. That's how I, I think of it. Uh, I realized as I was trying to re reflect and say, what will I say today, uh, uh, that I'm I'm really not a, a thinker who thinks and then writes. I, I really think through writing. Um, this is uh, it's always been true, so there's nothing new, but, but perhaps more so here than ever before. Um, I think my preferable form is the essay, which I think is very clear uh, in this book, again, more than any of the others before. The essay is a really it's a lovely form of writing. It's really my favorite um, because it's inconclusive, because it enables you to make to take turns in the middle of uh, of, of discussing something. Because it doesn't uh, put uh, it doesn't um, enslave you into uh, con into coming to full conclusion, into exhausting the subject. Um, and um, I'd like to 
and also because it, it works by juxtaposition instead of just simply unfolding of concepts. Very interesting. This book was solicited by by three presses, and and um, it was you know a real honor for me. Uh, I uh, the first know so I took I sort of took them up in turn as they had offered. The first one, I won't say who they are. Uh, they're very prestigious press. Uh, they had solicited, and they rejected, it, and they said, "This is really this book is not a treatise. You can't publish this book." Well, I've never written a treatise in my entire career. Uh, I don't think I can write one. Uh, I don't really have that kind of training. But it was an interesting lesson to learn, actually. Uh, it, it, it is, it is an a, a essayistic um, um, way of dealing uh, with, um, with the material, which, uh, for me, it really is about ultimately beyond the specific content, okay, which we're obviously going to discuss. My colleagues will do much better than me on this. Um, um, it's um, generally speaking, it's really about the worldliness of concepts, which isn't really just to simply say the historicity of concepts, the fact that they belong in history, which of course they do, but but uh, about the fact that that concepts are always a material that is in the world and never leaves it, regardless the various. Uh, uh, extraordinary efforts by discourses, you know, science and philosophy, <coughs> theology and so forth to do so. And insofar as it is about the worldliness of concepts, then the essay form it seems to me to be um, um, a more apt, let's say, form to deal with this. So the last thing I will say, I haven't even timed myself, but I'm hoping hopefully within eight, eight minutes, is and I'd and I'd like to reveal this. I I think it's it's also an interesting point of, of discussion. I think cer certainly my colleagues will understand this very well. Um, I think that this is a, 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 a the kind of writing that comes from a literary study sensibility, um, um, which is really which isn't reducible to just you know reading literary texts. Uh, but it is but it, but it does have a lot to do with reading, uh, and and uh, and reading. Um, material, um, worldly material, and I, I, I am, as I said, really honored that I am in discussion with philosophers and political theorists and, and even theologians, certainly historians, um, because I do write in these discourses and, and I feel comfortable in, in writing in these discourses, but there is no doubt about the fact that my way of approaching both the material and these discourses is from what I would call a literary study sensibility, which sends us really back to the importance of writing um, more, let's say, that conceptual framework, if that makes any sense. Um, and that's as much as I will say to turn it over to my friends. Now we'll hear my interview with Columbia professor Bruce Robbins. I'm here with Bruce Robbins, the Old Dominion Foundation Professor of the Humanities within the Department of English and Comparative Literature. Thank you so much for speaking with me this My morning. My pleasure. So I thought we could start by talking about the one of the book's title, Perils of the One. What does Gagoras mean by this? And what examples does he find of this oneness in his book? Um, I think the simplest way to imagine it is by thinking about kingship, monarchy. Mm -hmm. He uses the word monarchical a lot. I think the, the emphasis that he comes back to over and over again is, you know, let's stop thinking about the world in terms of there being a king mm -hmm. and, you know, um, 
God as a king or the, the model of uh, a single monarch um, also applied to other things because he's not just critical of religion, he's critical of what he calls secularism. He makes a distinction between what he calls secular criticism, which is what he likes, and secularism, which he doesn't like. And secularism would be a kind of worship of a, like a single principle, whether it's reason or equally important, um, the market. Mm -hmm. So these are not, in, in principle, religions. They're, it's not, the targets are not religious targets, but I think the point he's trying to make is that we're making a mistake if we treat reason or the market in the same way, like kings or, you know, like a monarchical model of God. Mm -hmm. Okay. So we'd be better off, in other words, if we kind of, um, uh, if we thought of principles that we respect out there as multiple, plural, um, the more we do that, the less likely we are to just submit in a, a mo the model is really submission, okay. um, which he thinks of as kind of anathema to human freedom. Right. Um, so, you know, get away from the model of there being a single monarch and you're going in the right direction. Okay. This is very interesting, the, um, the connection of the secular with religious ideas of worship. Um, and that's actually something else that you noted, one possible claim that um, the book is making is that the critique of religion and the critique of secularism are actually the same thing, which is what you're saying here. And then he inverts that to say that these critiques are assumed to be the work of secular criticism, and he's responding to Edward Said there, if I'm not mistaken. Um, responding to is not exactly the way that I'd put it. Sure. I mean, he's been very, very inspired by Edward Said. Mm -hmm. um, and in the background, I think, of this book is... Um, uh, an essay that Said wrote called Secular Criticism, which was really much more addressed to nationalism on the one hand, so a kind of worship of the nation, mm -hmm. um, and uh, I, at the time, I don't know how much how important this is for uh, Gorbouris now, but a, a critique of deconstruction, mm -hmm. which he saw, Said saw, as um, uh, a kind of religious criticism, sort of otherworldly, um, a kind of worship of uh, infinite criticism, which just loses touch with the world. So I think that's that's hovering in the background of this book rather than you know right out in the in in front. Sure. But it's an important thing. I mean, I think that the 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 word worldly. Mm -hmm. which is a very important wor word for Said, is also a very important concept for Gurguris. Right. I mean, he would like to see us all try to be a little more worldly. Mm -hmm. um, and just to get really back to the same point from a different angle, this is a point that, that Nietzsche had made. I mean, Nietzsche is sort of the, the philosophical founder of this line of thinking. Everybody knows that Nietzsche said that, you know, God is dead. Mm -hmm. Not everybody remembers that he also said we won't really have gotten rid of religion until we get rid of grammar. That is to say, 
there there are forms of uh, sort of unconscious ordering of the world, which are equivalents to the, what was mistaken in religion that we li- we take for granted and we kind of accept because they seem to be secular. And I think Oguris is doing the, the same kind of operation, maybe not on grammar, although he's a poet and he thinks very poetically. So it may be that the kind of wrenching apart of grammatical order um, that poets do all the time is really quite essential to his sort of philosophical position. Mm-hmm. You know, subject, verb, object. Well, who says the word come, the world comes in the form of subject, verb, object? Right. You know, let's whip those things open and, you know, the world will look very different. Absolutely. Yeah, this is very interesting. I've been reading a lot about grammar uh, starting as far back as ancient Rome and thinking about how looking at these grammars, we can read um, so, sometimes subconscious and some have argued that it's more conscious ways of ordering the world. I'm thinking particularly of uh, gender binaries because mm-hmm. that's what my work is. Well, exactly. In. Yeah. yeah, it's a very, very good example. Yeah. Um, excellent. So uh, I wonder if we could speak a little bit more about the ways that the book removes the divide between religion and politics and the work that he is doing to address this. Um, well, I sort of think I just, <laughs> just yeah, yeah. I just I may have you know said all I have to say on that on that subject. Um, let's see. Um, well, I'm not sure this is an answer exactly to your question, but it's the best. It's all that's coming to mind at this at this second. Um, so he uh, takes as his target the ancient Greek concept of archi. Mm-hmm which means, it's a really interesting word, it means three things that I know of. One is rule, so it refers to the ruler, Mm -hmm. but another one is origin. Mm -hmm. So people are sometimes, allow themselves to be ruled by an idea of their own origin. So it's, you know, arguing backwards to where you come from. And it also means principle, Mm -hmm. right? So in a sense and you asked me this in your your email question you know what what do you think what is he why is he talking about anarchism or anarchy yes. well he's talking about it in a very literal sense doing without that's the on mm-hmm. he in this triple sense of ruler principle and origin mm-hmm. um and it, it's a very powerful uh critique which obviously goes way beyond uh, religion as an object, because there's a lot of thinking about principle, there's a lot of thinking about origin, um, and forms of rule, which are not particularly um, sacred or theological. Mm-hmm. So he's really trying to say, uh, human freedom, which I will say, coming from where I come from, is the kind of the sacred for him, uh, the the freedom to create and to recreate and to transform, um, that those things can only really be uh, achieve the realize themselves if one stops thinking in terms of being ruled whether by an origin or a principle or any any really any kind of ruler. Mm-hmm. Um, so. In terms of politics, that can take the form of actual anarchism, and the the teasing that I 
uh, offered a little bit of gently in the event at the Heyman Center had to do with his own early tendencies to literally a politics of anarchism, mm -hmm. which I think have been tempered in what I would consider a good direction <laughs> by him watching good people try to use the state machinery for good purposes um, in the recent Syriza government in, in Greece, which he took a lot of flack from a lot of people from for standing up and defending. Mm. And I teased him about that, and he knew he was going to be teased <laughs> because, it's, I mean, that I believe that the machinery of the state, it's a form of rule, of course, um, is worth good people trying to take over to help, you know, for the welfare of other people, mm -hmm. you know, so it's very, it's very, very different than just um, the principle of creativity. It's using machinery that is there mm -hmm. uh, for good purposes. Right, right. Instead of the, the complete absence. Instead of a kind of celebration, which I, I do think that the book, you know, sometimes is in danger of falling into mm -hmm. of theatricality or performance both of those being terms which notoriously have lent themselves to a kind of celebration of creativity, mm -hmm. as if creativity were a little freer than it actually is. Right. So the idea of, of performativity is we get it from Judith Butler and she gets it from Austin uh, and, and elsewhere. I mean, obviously it only works if certain conditions are in place, right? right? I mean, if I say, with this ring, I thee wed to you right now, we're not going to be married, right? right? <laughs> if I say, I hereby christen thee, you know, the, the SS Nautilus, it doesn't matter even if I have a champagne bottle in my hand and I crack it over my own head, right. you know, the Nautilus is not, the ship is not going to be named the Nautilus. Right. So it's all about conditions, right? And mm -hmm. you have to change the conditions. Um, I mean, Judith Butler was uh, received the criticism that she was sort of overemphasizing the freedom to adopt gender identity mm -hmm. by talking about the gender identity as performed. Yes. I mean, it's performed, but you can't just walk into your closet, choose what gender identity you're going to put on that day, and go out into the world and, okay, you're a t totally different gender. She knows very well that it's not as free as that. Right. And you know, when we talk theatricality or performativity, performance, we're always a little bit in danger of making um, the world seem too free. Yes, which is some another criticism that you brought up at the panel, this idea of human freedom and how it often gets aligned with anarchism. But um, freedom, perhaps, in, in some of the senses that we would talk about it today is something that functions within a system of guidelines. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, the book kind of knows that, but its deepest commitment is nevertheless... I mean, he would call it autonomy, I think, rather than, than freedom. Mm -hmm. But often the, the metaphors that surround it are those of creativity. Right. Um, and, you know, who could be against that? Right. Right, I mean, not in an English department, you're not <laughs> against it. I mean, it's kind of, you know, it's our bread and butter. Um, but, I mean, if one is going to be politically serious, one cannot pretend that it's the point is to just re reimagine the world. Right. I mean, the word, the, word, the word imagination is, you know, one of our keywords. Yes. Um, and I, I guess if there had been time and, and uh, possibility, uh, 
at that occasion, the Heyman Center occasion, then you know I might have launched into a bit of a diatribe that I have about. So, mm -hmm. he has uh, a very positive association with the word chaos. Yes. And I have a less positive uh, association <laughs> with the word chaos. I understand that it is convenient if you want to think of the imagination as a free faculty which can order the world differently and make the world a better place mm -hmm. by ordering it differently. It's convenient to think that the truth of the world is chaos, mm -hmm. right? And then it's just waiting passively for our active imagination to come along and reorder it. Except I don't think that's true, you know, or it certainly hasn't been proven. Right. It seems to me that there are patterns and, you know, resistances which are kind of systemic and, you know, they're kind of really there. Mm -hmm. So to some extent, it's not all imagination. It's like realizing what those conditions are within which you can act and you know do what you can. Anyway, yes. this makes me kind of an old fogey no. by comparison with the, you know, the... Uh, heroic um, imagination. Not at all. I I agree. I think that, as we've been talking about, we are shaped by unconscious systems of ordering. And even if you are challenging this idea by the words imagination, creativity, there are still unconscious systems of ordering yeah. and bias that are inherent. Or even the ones you're conscious of, you right. know, but they're there, right? You bang your head up against them when you try to change things and you say, okay, that hurts. Right. You know, they, they really are there. Yeah, absolutely. And I wonder if we could sort of draw this conversation to a close by thinking about um, creation in the form of the book itself. Because uh -huh. you opened your comments by talking about how the book itself was multiple and looking at its form. And as you've mentioned in this conversation, Stathis is a poet. So I wonder if you could say a little bit about how, when you were reading the book, your experience of it and the, the form that it takes. Well, I said at that occasion that in some ways it really reminded me of Edward Said, mm -hmm. and that's really true. Uh, Edward Said is a, was a fan of the essay. Um, he did not believe in sy systemic thinking. Right. I mean, he thought that systemic thinking was likely to falsify the world. So that the, the way one could sort of add value to um, thinking was by kind of making forays out in particular directions, each one an essay in the sense of an effort, you know, a, 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 a tentative to get somewhere. And, you know, self-consciously provisional. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the, 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 the note that is struck over and over again in this book. It's a book of essays, mm -hmm. you know, which are uh, gathered around um, a set of concerns, but they really don't pretend to be anything other than essays. Right. So they're kind of poetic uh, impulses, using material with ex astonishing erudition. Mm -hmm. the, the depth of knowledge of these essays is really, really dazzling. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, they're essays. And I personally am also kind of a believer in the essay. <laughs> so, you know, the, the experience I had was one of pleasure. And, and the pleasure of recognition of a mind that is so much like Edward Said's, someone whom I, I miss every day. Right. Well, thank you so much for speaking with me. My pleasure, like I said.
Thanks so much for listening to today's podcast celebrating Statis Gorgoras' book, The Perils of the One. I hope you'll join us next time when we discuss Sharon Marcus' book, The Drama of Celebrity. From Columbia University Society of Fellows and Heyman Center for the Humanities, I'm Ann Levitsky.